Good morning. My name is Eric. I get to be the pastor here. Again, just want to say welcome. Thanks for being here. About 10 years ago, I was a youth pastor in Colorado, which meant I was a pastor to teenagers. That's what I did. And when I was a youth pastor, we would take these retreats sometimes up to the mountains. It was awesome. Uh, so one time we took a whole bunch of, of vans of people in our congregation that we had borrowed. We said, hey, we'll save some money this year. We'll borrow a bunch of minivans and we'll take a bunch of junior high kids up to this camp up in the mountains. And if you've been up in the mountains, you know it's not all Breckenridge and Vale and uh, Esses Park. There are some kind of sketchy mountain towns along the way. And when we were on our way up to the mountains... You know, what happens with junior hires, and especially junior high girls, is when they go on these kind of trips, they all pack, like, you know, huge caffeinated beverages and, you know, sugar, and they drink them all in the first 30 minutes. And so they're hopped up on sugar, and our volunteers are just trying to, you know, hold steady on these mountain roads. And so, you know, long before we really should have stopped for a bathroom break, you know, I get a text from one of my uh, leaders saying, hey, we need to make a bathroom break. The sixth grade girls in my van, they're all, they need to go to the bathroom. It's like, okay, fine. We'll pull over to this kind of sketchy mountain town that later I dubbed uh, the gas station from hell, and you'll find out why. Uh, so we pull over at this gas station. And so on this trip, I was one of the leaders, and uh, we had a couple other youth leaders uh, on this trip, and I had asked uh, one of the females in our church to be a youth leader. She wasn't normally a leader, but she was driving one of our vans. She was actually driving my mother-in-law's borrowed van. Uh, that'll come into the story in a minute. And so as we stop for gas, I'm driving a borrowed van, she's driving a borrowed van, one of our other youth leaders is driving a borrowed van. She pulls into the gas station, and the gas station didn't have, you know, yellow lines on where to park. So she's kind of pulled in one spot. Well, she goes in, her girls use the restroom, and as she's backing up, she hears that sound that no one wants to ever hear backing up, that crunch, and right at that moment of impact, a horn, which is pretty funny, uh, because, you know, once someone has backed into you, it doesn't help to honk your horn. <laughs> and so... She gets out and realizes that one of our other youth leaders had parked directly behind her. Not next to her, behind her. And so she's like, what are we going to do? And I was up the road, actually. So I, I turn around, I come back, and, and, you know, I'm the youth pastor. And so I'm like, you know, I'm thinking all these thoughts of like, how could you do this? You know, how, how could you park here? How could you park there and back into each other? Oh, but, you know, I have to control myself and, you know, not lose it in front of all the teens because, you know, their faces are just pressed up against the glass like, what's Pastor Eric going to do? What's he going to do? And so we go inside and grab duct tape to, you know, tape on his side view mirror again and the bumper because, you know, guys, duct tape can fix everything, right? And so we duct tape the car back together and it's like, all right, let's get up to the camp. We'll deal with this later. And uh, so I get in my borrowed minivan as well and I'm kind of frustrated like, I can't believe this happened. How do you do that? And I'm backing up and I'm backing up. And there's this beeping sound that I don't recognize. And uh, what it was telling me is I'm getting closer and closer to one of these concrete barriers that's protecting uh, the gas pump. And then I hear the worst possible sound. <laughs> Crunch. And uh, the whole back end is just inverted. It's terrible. And so I get out. And so now all the students are watching me. The youth leaders are watching me. And our female volunteer who had backed into our other volunteer, she gets out and she's just laughing because she knows what I was thinking. How could you do this? And I'm thinking, this is the gas station from hell. 
how did we wreck three borrowed vehicles in one bathroom stop? <laughs> Unbelievable. And so she's kind of chuckling at me like, yeah, you thought, you know, I was messing up, but you made it even worse. And so I look down at her, and I just wrap my arms around her and give her a big hug and just kiss my wife. Like, Thank you for not judging me uh, for, you know, uh, backing up into a van. Uh, if you didn't catch it, that was my wife, who was the first one, uh, my youth leader. <laughs> and so... What I learned through that is relationships can be tough. Uh, we've all, you know, wanted to say things or we've all thought things of like, how could you do this? How could you make this mistake? Relationships take work. It takes work to make relationships work. And that's what this series is all about these next six weeks. We want to hopefully give you some helpful tools that if you're in a relationship, to take that relationship to the next level. We want to give you some tools if you're single on how to navigate single life. Uh, and so this week uh, and every week, we've got some note sheets. You want to take notes, follow along. Our goal is not just to throw a bunch of information at you, but we want to help you have a life of transformation. We want you to grow to become more the way that God created you to be. And we think the best way to do that is if you hear a message, if you write it down, uh, if you discuss it. Uh, and, and that's what even learning principles say, that we, we learn better when we don't just hear it. So this morning, if you're taking notes, you want to write that down, that it takes work to make relationships work. Amen? It doesn't just happen by accident. you got to work at it. Maybe today you came in this morning, maybe, maybe your marriage is a wreck, and, and you guys are seriously talking about divorce. Maybe this morning, you know, things are good, but you're like, you know what, I just know things can go to that next level. Well, no matter where your marriage got to the place where it is today, it's possible to find resolution and redemption and restoration, but it's going to take a lot of work from both you and your spouse. My hope is that in this series, wherever you find yourself, married, single, married again for the second or third time, that wherever season you find yourself, and you're going to find some hope. Get your hopes up. That's what God wants for you, is to have hope in your life. Well, here's the good news, is that we aren't alone. We aren't unique in these relationship struggles. It's not like a 21st century thing where, you know, all of a sudden, you know, marriage was perfect, and now, we, ah, how do we do this? There were relationship struggles all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve. And fortunately, there's no dichotomy, no split between spirituality and sexuality, between loving God with all your heart and soul, and between loving your spouse with all your heart and flesh. And that's what the book of the Song of Solomon, that's what it brings to the table. And I'm so thankful that God addresses passion and sex and relationships that God doesn't consider sex and marriage a topic that's off-limits, and we don't either. Throughout this series, uh, our messages will be uh, rated PG, and then I'll let you know we're going to have one uh, message that will be rated PG-13, so I'll let all the parents know about that when we get to that week. But we're going to be diving into this book, The Song of Solomon. There's a couple of things I want you to remember as we dive into this book of the Bible. Number one, you know, write this down. This is a song. This is a song. And Songs are meant to be sung. Songs are meant to be sung. I know, you're thinking, wow, Eric, what a deep insight. I'm so glad that you are our pastor and you spend hours and hours studying. Thank you. I didn't realize this was a song by the title. I didn't realize songs are supposed to be sung. But no, it's important to remember that. It's important to remember what kind of literature we're diving into. Song of Solomon, it's a song. It's different than a prison epistle like the book of Galatians. It's different than a book of history like Acts or Genesis. It's different than a gospel like Luke, which we were in the last 40 weeks. 
When we read the Bible, it's important to recognize what kind of literature that we are reading. And the Song of Solomon, it, it, it's a dramatic script that was originally intended to be acted out during uh, their Jewish festivals or during, maybe even during their seven-day wedding uh, celebrations. It's a musical, when you think of this. So uh, think of this part of the Bible like Hamilton. Any Hamilton fans out there? A few? Yeah. Or like Oklahoma, it's kind of like that, or Wicked, or whatever you might be. It, it's, it's a musical, right? There's a progression to the story with conflict and resolution. It, and really, the, the, the musical takes place in three acts. Uh, act one, we have kind of the courtship and his proposal. And we're going to be talking about that this week and next week. And then act two, we're going to get to the wedding ceremony and the wedding night. And that's the one that's going to be PG-13. Uh, and then act three, after their wedding night, uh, you could insert some time later. That'd be like the, screen, you know, like the black screen that would go up like in a movie or something. Some time later, and then into their marriage, and how everything doesn't stay all perfect and rosy, and how do you deal with conflict and resolution in your marriage? But first, it's important to understand and feel the power and the play of words that our poet-author uses. There are things that only poetry can do to the human heart and imagination. It's why the musical Hamilton is so much more popular than a history textbook. If I've learned anything from my teenage nephew, Ethan, it's that rap music makes the founding fathers that much more interesting, right? There's a big difference in how the poet, do we have any poetry fans in here? Yeah, I like poetry. Uh, the, the poet Lord Byron, he writes this. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies and all that's best or dark and bright. Meet in her aspect and in her eyes, thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies. There's a difference between saying that and a woman in a black dress with shiny beads looked pretty when she walked by. <laughs> like, right? There's a difference between, because sometimes we're like, why don't they just lay it out and say what they mean? Well, there's a point to that. This is poetry, okay? They're meant to, we're meant to feel it, not just like, you know, a list of things we to do or don't do. And as we study these poetic sections, we want to ask, what is this poetry doing? We want to feel the poetry before we act on its message. Let the beauty of the poetry and the song wash over our emotions and our feelings. That's what our poet author would have wanted for us. Number one, this is a song. Number two, this is a song about human love. This is a song about human love. Growing up, I was taught the Song of Solomon was an allegory about how Jesus loves us. And that left me feeling very confused as a teenager when I read in chapter four about their wedding night. And I'm like, I don't understand. Who am I in this story? This is making me feel uncomfortable, okay? No, this is not just an allegory. This is a celebration of God's gift of passion, sex, and marriage to humans. Now, there are some thematic echoes that will point us to Jesus, and that's different, though, than an allegory where everything relates uh, directly to our relationship as the church and Jesus. But this song is primarily about the celebration of married human love in a covenant relationship with each other and under God. Here's how one uh, commentator, he, he said it. This is erotic poetry set within the ethical limits of the marriage bed. It's a beautiful balance. It has adult content, but it is adolescent appropriate. It has adult content, but is adolescent appropriate. Uh, some scholars even think that this was actually what they use for sexual education for their teenagers. Um, it's not X-rated, but it is PG-rated, parental guidance and pastor guidance recommended. And uh, I'm going to do my best to kind of be your guide through this series. 
Uh, but I'm also just going to leave a few things up to your imagination. I'm going to kind of lead you there and say, all right, if you want to dive deeper in what this really means, go ahead and study that yourself. Uh, here's my challenge. If you and your spouse have never done an in-depth Bible study, this is the perfect opportunity to do that. And uh, this may be some of your favorite application points uh, when we get to the uh, more racy parts that I'm going to leave out. So you and your spouse can dive in. What are they really saying here? What's the metaphor here really mean? Uh, that's a great opportunity for you guys to study God's word together and figure that out. So this is a song about human love. Number three, written to give us wisdom. In the Bible, we have a section called the wisdom literature. And it's found in the Old Testament, the first part of our Bible. And wisdom literature is the closest thing to philosophy that ancient people had. Wisdom literature wrestles with questions like, where do I come from? Where am I going? Can I know God? What is life all about? What is the nature of love? That's what the wisdom literature wrestles with those kind of questions. Very applicable to what we are going through today. A lot of these same questions that we have. And three of the books in the wisdom literature were written by King Solomon, the greatest king of Israel. You have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Proverbs was written by King Solomon, probably when he's a little bit younger, a little arrogant maybe, a bit of a know-it-all, uh, but he shares his wisdom, wisest man who ever lived. Then came Ecclesiastes, and Solomon wrote that probably when he was like, he's middle-aged, and had realized the pinnacle of his power and wealth, but realized that success left him feeling kind of empty, and bemoans, you know, Life's kind of meaningless. We see this a lot of uh, athletes or, or movie stars or just wealthy people, and they achieve all their dreams. It's like, man, it's kind of empty up here. And, and that's what King Solomon kind of wrestles with in Ecclesiastes. And then many scholars agree that King Solomon then wrote Song of Solomon at the end of his life as he's reflecting back. And as he's thinking about this life spent with 700 wives can't wrap my mind around that. How do you even do that? And countless nights with other side women, like 700 wasn't enough for him. He had to have these concubines in, uh, as well. He writes the greatest of the 1,000 songs that he wrote as if to say to his, his readers, listen, on the matter of marriage, do as I say, not as I did. Don't emulate my love life filled with countless sexual relationships that left me filled with regret. Instead, emulate this couple's Simple, faithful, passionate love for each other. So King Solomon, he's kind of a wise old man now, and he's sharing his wisdom in the form of this song, this musical. And in this song, Solomon seeks to give wisdom to two different groups of people, married couples and those that are single, not married. Hopefully, today, you're in one of those two camps. <laughs> you're either married or single, and that's who Solomon is addressing. And that's going to be our goal, too, in this series. My hope is that every week those who are single can walk away with some wisdom and truth that you can apply to your lives. I also hope that every week married couples can learn some truths you can help apply to your marriage to grow deeper in passion and love. And the first audience that we're going to see here uh, that it's addressed are the unmarried young ladies. And these girls are admonished to wait for sexual intimacy. Our authors are our authors telling them, I understand it. You're a teenage girl. Your body is saying yes. Your boyfriend is saying yes, or maybe at least please. Come on, let's do this. But they're encouraged to say no. Wait for marriage. The book of Proverbs could be called a book for boys. Uh, the word son is used over 40 times. The word daughter is never used. 
Solomon talks a lot about what kind of women to avoid, and it ends with chapter 31, which says, this is the kind of woman you need to save yourself for, to wait for this kind of woman, Proverbs 31 woman. If you have teenage kids, I want to encourage you, Proverbs is a great book to read uh, one chapter every morning. One chapter a day, and you can read through the whole book each month. The Song of Songs is a book geared a little more for the girls. Its message to girls is patience and then passion. In Proverbs, the single guys are told uh, to go take a cold shower to cool down your desires and your passion. In Song of Solomon, the single girls are told, go take a cold shower, cool down your passion and your desire. However, also in the Song of Solomon, the married couples, and now kids, you might want to close your ears, they're told to take a hot shower together. (laughs) And uh, both newlyweds and those who've been married for decades. God's word really means that. The shower part's optional, but the passion and the desire part is not optional. The Song of Solomon asks married couples, how's your love life going? Is your married bed alive or is it dead? My hope is that as we read and as we study the Song of Solomon, it's going to be kind of like attending a wedding and witnessing the passion and rightness of young love that hopefully will ignite passion and fire in your marriage. The Song of Solomon is God's provision to sustain loving marriages and to renew loveless ones. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. That's, the Song of Solomon is God's provision to sustain loving marriages and renew loveless ones. So let's review. Why was the Song of Solomon written? It's a song about human love written to give us wisdom. All right, you guys ready to dive in? This is going to be great. Uh, first, we're going to be diving into what does God say about desire? We've already talked about how the Song of Solomon, to understand it, it's really kind of a musical with three acts. There's also three main characters in the Song of Solomon. The bride, the girl who's the star of the musical, she has just over half of all the lines in the musical. Uh, Her gal pals are her bridesmaids. And then her beloved future husband, he has about a third of the lines. And in Act 1, which we're going to dive into today and next week, the happy, excited couple exchange expressions of desire and self-doubt. We're going to talk about that next week. And encouragement and expectation culminating in a very beautiful wedding proposal. And the first words we hear sung are the girl's urgent pleading to her future husband as she sings her desire to share her love fully and completely with him. It's interesting to know that throughout the song, the girl is the one who takes the initiative and is the one who's often more outspoken. She's the star of the musical. I love this. I lo- so often we think that the Bible or Christianity like pushes down women or something. No, like here it's very affirming of women. She's the star. She gets the most lines. She's neither passive nor weak. And with unbridled expression, she voices her longing for her wedding night that's to come. Let's dive in. Song of Solomon, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Uh, So one thing you might see even up on here is uh, we have her lines highlighted in pink. So to really understand the book of the Song of Solomon, you have to understand when she's talking, when he's talking, and when the bridesmaids or her friends are talking. And so something I've done, and I encourage you maybe to do it this week if you want to read through the book of the Song of Solomon, take a highlighter and highlight her lines in pink, his lines in blue, and uh, use another color for kind of the, the, the bridesmaids or the friends. And that really helps you as you read it to understand who's talking. And so throughout this series, uh, to help you understand kind of who's speaking in the, their lines, we're going to highlight her words in pink, his words in blue, and I don't remember what we picked for the bridesmaids. But All right, so let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. 
One translation says it this way. She's saying, smother me with kisses. This is a romantic kiss. She's looking forward to the, the climax of the wedding celebration that's to come when the pastor's going to say, you may now kiss your bride. That first public kiss as husband and wife, and the kisses in private, it's going to continue throughout the wedding night. She then moves from singing about his kisses to singing about his love. His love for her is intoxicating like wine. His love for her makes her lightheaded and full of life. I want you to see this kind of, as you picture the musical, picture her maybe she's on a balcony like Juliet, and she's singing about her beloved. Let him kiss me. His love is like this. And then he appears. He shows up. So now she sings to him. She's looking right at him. You can just picture the passion in their eyes as this young, uh, betrothed couple heading towards their marriage, and they're so excited. She sings, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. She's saying, translation here, she likes how her boyfriend smells, okay? That's what she's saying here. He wears nice cologne. Confession time. Sometimes when my wife is traveling and she's gone, I'll like roll over and snuggle with her pillow because I like how it smells. Like we're creatures of smell and sight and sound. Uh, it's a good thing. The Bible acknowledges that. Then she moves to praising his name. What does that mean? She likes like the name that he was given? No. In the Bible, one's name represents character. The Bible tells us again and again that character matters, that character matters. Today, if you're single and you're looking for someone to spend your life with, maybe you were married and now you're single again. Maybe you're, you're single and have never been married. If you're looking for that person to spend your life with, look for someone with a good name and good character. Because of his good character, she says that all the girls love him, but he belongs to her. She's proud of her man and his great character. Guys, if you are single and looking for love, what Song of Solomon tells us is that first, work on smelling good, okay? Get some cologne and smell nice. It's just biblical. <laughs> Second, work on your character. Work hard to have a good name. Show up and do your job. Be responsible. Volunteer in the nursery. <laughs> You know, plan now, train now to be a good dad. Make a good name for yourself. What our female star is saying here is that his name, his good reputation and noble character, that's irresistible, attractive, irresistibly attractive to her. She's waited her whole life for her wedding night, and now she's justifiably impatient. She wants to run away and elope with her man. Verse 4, draw me after you. Let us run. Let's, let's get out of here. Let's run away and get married. The king has brought me into his chambers. She's dreaming about her king bringing her into his chambers. She's basically asking her future husband to come and kiss her and whisk her away. And there's a beautiful give and take here. She's not an overly aggressive character in a movie who grabs her boyfriend's tie and pulls him in and kisses him. Instead, she grabs his tie, looks him deep in the eyes and says, kiss me. She calls her future husband a king. He's not literally the King Solomon. Uh, some commentators disagree with that, uh, but most agree this song was written by Solomon. It's not about Solomon. And so she calls her shepherd boyfriend a king. She's given him honor, worth, greatness. She's proud of him. He's not literally a king. He's just a common shepherd, but he's her king. What do you guys think? You married guys, uh, how would you like your wife to call you her king, to ask you to kiss her, and then bring you up to your bedroom. 
Pretty good, huh? Yeah, I think so. That'll do. Uh, so uh, here's your homework, all right? Uh, especially wives, especially if your husband didn't come to church with you today and you go home and your husband says, how was church today? Tell him, well, here's what the pastor said. I'm supposed to, you know, he encouraged me to call you my king, to ask you to kiss me and to carry me upstairs. His response probably will be like, what time is service next week? Uh, so you can share that with him if you want. Uh, back to our young couple. She's kind of breathless from her imagination, where it's taken her, but these two aren't married yet. So they need to have patience. I think it's great that the Bible doesn't deny that strong sexual desires exist before marriage and in marriage. It acknowledges them, it warns of their potential danger, but also rejoices in their right expression. A couple takeaways here. First takeaway, we need to know that desire is not demonic, it's divine. Desire is not demonic, it's divine. Desire is divine, it comes from God. Desire is natural, and the consummation of that desire in marriage is good. There's a point too I wanted to make, is that desire and passion in marriage is awesome and it comes from God. But that is not necessary for life. See, you and I, we will die from a lack of water or lack of food or lack of oxygen. I don't think anyone has died from a lack of sex. And so if you are single or if, you, if your spouse is physically uh, unable to engage in intimate relationships, I want you to know that you are not less than human. You are fully human. You don't have to be engaged in this kind of marital intimacy to be a full and complete human. Jesus was and is celibate. And he celebrated celibacy. Paul, who wrote majority of the New Testament, he was celibate. And so the Bible celebrates that. So on one hand, we want to embrace and enjoy desire and passion in marriage. But those who feel called to be single your whole life, or maybe you were married and now you're not, or maybe just you are physically unable to have that part of your life, you are not less than human. And I don't want you to feel like that's something that is necessary to be a full and complete human. So I don't want anyone to feel less than human. Second takeaway here is that both character and chemistry matter in the matter of love. Both character and chemistry matter in the matter of love. First of all, chemistry. These two have great chemistry. They are excited. They want to be together. There should be that spark. That is necessary. But character is also super important. Single guys, don't tell me you're dating a lady and be like, well, she doesn't have very good character, but man, she is hot. No, don't say that. <laughs> Ladies, if you're dating someone, be like, well, he has kind of a bad name, bad reputation, not very good character, but man, he's really rich, or he's really funny, or he's smoking hot. Like, no, that is stupid. Don't be stupid. That is the opposite of wisdom. The Bible wants to give us wisdom. God wants us to be wise. Single ladies, look for a man now who has the characteristics of a godly husband in Scripture. 1 Peter 3.7 says, a man who is understanding and not harsh. Ephesians 5.25 says, a man who sacrificially loves like Christ, who's able to lead you in your faith. Don't date someone you hope is someday going to have good character and spiritual strength. Date someone who has those characteristics and is continuing to grow in those areas. Same for you single guys. Look for a woman now who has the characteristics of a godly wife and is continuing to grow in those areas. Third takeaway, 
Desire needs not die out after the honeymoon or after having kids. I see you parents of toddlers, all right? The desire and passion you used to have can be rekindled. I like these questions that a pastor friend of mine asks guys that he, he meets with when they're expressing frustration in their marriage. He says, do you love your wife? He said, almost always, yeah, of course I love my wife. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he says, second question, do you like your wife? That's a tougher question sometimes. Because sometimes when we're going through tough times, it's like, I don't really like you right now. <laughs> and the third question he asks, he says, do you desire your wife? I think wives, same question for you. Do you love your husband? Do you like your husband? Do you desire your husband? Do you desire your spouse? If so, thank God for that gift. That's awesome. But the reality is that statistically, in a high majority of couples, one of the partners is experiencing sexual frustration. So if you aren't experiencing frustration, um, and you're one of the two, it might be a good idea to check with your spouse, because they may be the other one uh, in that equation. And if you could help get some help rekindling desire in your marriage, I want to give you three steps to help you uh, renew your marital intimacy. Number one, pray. Pray about it. Ask God, who's in the business of changing hearts, to soften yours. Pray for your marriage. Pray for desire. If you don't feel that desire, pray for desire. Pray for prolonged kissing in the kitchen, which makes your kids gag or roll their eyes. <laughs> Parents of young kids especially, pray for supernatural energy at the end of the day or early in the morning so that you can uh, have a rekindled desire for your spouse. I get it. You're tired. Married couples, it's okay to pray for your sex life. It's okay. Pray out loud together on a regular basis. This is something we've talked about. One of the greatest indicators uh, of things that helps couples not get divorced is that if they pray out loud together on a regular basis. I want to encourage you to do that. Pray out loud together on a regular basis. And if you've never done that, it may feel awkward at first. Maybe you're lying in bed and you just want to grab your spouse's hand and say, let's pray. And you're going to pray, God, this is awkward, but we're praying out loud. Amen. You know, husbands, you're like, God, help her to have more desire for me. Amen. And she might say, God, give him a better smell. I don't know. You know, whatever it might be. But you can pray for those things. That's okay. Number two, remember. Think back and remember what fueled that first flame of passion and desire. Why did you marry him in the first place? Why did you ask her to be your wife, to have and to hold until death do you part? Remember, how did it feel when you held hands for the first time and electricity sh shot through your body? Remember what it felt like, that first magical kiss. Maybe this week, your homework taken home is, is to remember, is to reenact your first date that you had and to, as a way to remember what was it like at the beginning. Number three, understand. Understand. In chapter one, the woman wants to be kissed and she expresses her desire because her man loves her well. Men, take the lead. Start loving your wife well. Seek to understand her. Here's a good word that I read uh, this week. Um, C.J. Mahoney in his book, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God, writes, before you touch her body, touch her heart and mind. Before you touch her body, touch her heart and mind. All the wives said amen. amen. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Husbands, do you study your wife the way you did that when you were trying to win her heart? 
Do you know what pleases her, what excites her, what honors her, encourages her, refreshes her, what helps her? Spend some time thinking this week about what she might like. Maybe it's a special date night where you do all the planning. That's a gift. Don't make her plan it. You do all the planning. Maybe it's a spontaneous love letter that you leave in her car or a surprise gift of clothing or jewelry. Or maybe give her perhaps the best gift of all, two hours free from the kids to do whatever she wants. If, all the, if your kids are young, that might be just the best gift that you could give her. Can I get an amen, moms? Some kid-free time. Go do whatever you want. I got it, honey. God tells us desire is good. But you need to wait until the right time to awaken that desire. In your marriage, if you want to awaken that desire, pray, remember, understand. Let's read on. We're going to, we're going to jump to, to uh, chapter 2, verse 7, and then uh, next week we're going to cover some of the verses in between. I realized I was trying to cover way too much. And I didn't think you'd want to be in a 90-minute sermon today. So, um, here we go. Next week, we're going to go backwards a little bit. But 2-7, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She's saying, don't start the process of making love until the appropriate time. This is the first time in our musical, that our leading lady is going to say the same thing. She's going to say, don't awaken love until the proper time. We're also going to see that uh, she says something to married couples, uh, and, and how it actually changes slightly throughout the book, uh, but she says that I am my beloved's and he is mine, and one of the most beautiful things about this is, is how that changes from start to finish, uh, which I can't wait. Week six, we'll get into that. But she's saying, do not stir up or awaken love until the right time. She's going to repeat this three times. And notice who she's addressing, the daughters of Jerusalem. These are young, single, Israelite teenagers, ripe and ready for love. Second, notice that her counsel is to keep in check sex, sexual arousal and activity until they can be fulfilled with the right person at the right time. And who is that? The right person for sexual intimacy is your spouse. And the right time is after the commitment and covenant relationship of marriage. And she's very serious about her warning, I adjure you. And her oath, by the gazelles or the does of the field, we might be like, why is she swearing by the gazelles and the does of the field? Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Well, it's actually kind of a play on words uh, in the original Hebrew. There's certain things we miss out because we have an English translation, we don't read Hebrew. These animals first represent our two main characters. Her pet name for her beloved, uh, her, her man, is a gazelle. And we're going to talk about in a couple weeks why that's such a great name. It's a strong, powerful animal, but it's not a predator. Uh, and so there's a big point to that. And then the counterpart of a gazelle is a doe of the field. And so they represent our, our lady and the beloved. And she uses that throughout the song. But there's more going on here. The Hebrew word for gazelle actually sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for host or angel armies. And does of the field actually sounds a lot like El Shaddai, one of the ancient names for God. These allusions are meant to highlight the seriousness and strength of her admonition. So gazelles and does of the field becomes God of the angel armies. You can think of it this way. She takes her, the single teenagers, puts them under oath and says, you know, do you pledge purity, complete purity, so help you God. The girl's telling her single friends, patience, have patience. And then passion later, patience now, passion later, patience now, passion later. And if you have teenage kids, that's what I would encourage you to teach them. Have patience now and passion later. Patience now, passion later. 
See, God always gives boundaries before the blessing. Sex is a blessing. It's a good thing. Too often, I think the church, I think Christians, have made sex sound like a dirty word. They just say, you know, douse it, all those desires with water, and don't ever speak of this again. It's a dirty thing. It's not. It's a blessing. Sex is a good thing. Amen? Sex is a good thing. Amen? Yeah. There you go. Thank you. Man, that's a weak amen. <laughs> you think if I'd ever got a good amen, that'd be that one. In the beginning of our story, Genesis 1, God puts Adam in the garden, and he tells him, don't touch that tree. Every other tree you can touch, don't touch that tree. He sets a boundary. Then he puts Adam to sleep, takes one of his ribs, and creates Eve. It's a beautiful thing. God takes a rib out of his side so that Eve would be his helper, not out of his head that she would lord over him or out of his foot that he'd step on her, but out of his side so they could be together. And Adam wakes up, sees a naked lady and says, whoa, man. And God's like, is that what we're going to call her? Woman? Okay, we'll write that down. <laughs> Justin, I need you for the drums back there. Uh, but God always gives boundaries before the blessing. How many of you guys like a good campfire? Especially now, fall. Who else loves fall? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Man, autumn is the best. Bonfires, pumpkin patches. We went down to uh, Georgia this weekend. Kristen was on our work trip. I tagged along. And it's so cute to see the Southerners with their fall decorations, and it's like 90 degrees outside. I'm like, really? Really? Like, and like, they have Christmas decorations you can buy. I'm like, really? Does it even snow here? I don't think so. But uh, I love bonfires. I love, you know, uh, you know the uh, hay rides, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I love fire. And fire is a great analogy for sex. See, the only way to not get burned by fire is to keep it within its boundaries. You need to make a fire pit. You need to have good boundaries around that so that fire can burn hot and, you know, passionate within those boundaries of that fire pit or in, in the boundaries of your fireplace. Because if it gets beyond those boundaries, we're going to have trouble. See, God created sex and created it to burn with white, hot passion in the boundaries of a covenantal relationship. God invented marriage. It was the first institution he invented it. He invented it even before the church. And since he invented it, he gets to set the boundaries for it. God tells us, in order to not get burned, don't awaken desire until you are in the boundaries of a covenantal relationship. And then there should be tons of desire and lovemaking. Married people, let that passion burn white hot. See, sex in a married, committed marriage is magic. It's like blowing on the coals of an incredibly powerful flame. Sex outside of marriage isn't so much a way of giving yourself. It's more about receiving fulfillment and pleasure without the boundaries and without the commitment of a covenantal relationship. See, sex is a way of saying to another person, I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. Sometimes the rap on Christians is that we don't think highly enough of sex, so we think it's dirty, we should bring it down over here. I actually think Christians should have a much higher view of sex. It's not just something to mess around with, to do with anyone. Sex is incredibly powerful. Sex is something that should only happen when there's commitment and a covenant relationship around there, that there's some boundaries, so that within those boundaries, you can give yourself fully and completely to that person. You can have no fear that they're going to you know, walk up the next morning and you're never going to see them again. That when you have those boundaries, it's a good thing. That's something you can only say within the boundaries of a covenant relationship through marriage. Only when that commitment has been made is there passion to give yourself and freedom totally and completely to your person. But you might be thinking, what if I've messed up? What if I'm currently messing up? Well, 
I want you to know that shame is not the solution. Shame is not the solution. So often the church's solution has been just to keep shame on people. There's a bonfire going, and they're like, oh, that's, not, that's, that's bad. Let's just take a bucket of cold water and pour it on there, and just let's pour water and all the passion on all the fire. If you're looking for a church that's going to condemn people for making mistakes, if you're looking for a church that's going to condemn people because they're on their second or third marriage, if you're looking for people, a church that's going to condemn people because they struggle with sexual sin, this is not that church. See, oftentimes shame is the source of our problems, so it can't be the solution. The important thing is what direction are you headed? Are you headed towards Christ? Jesus welcomes sinners. If you have messed up, Jesus welcomes you, and so do we. We like to say around here, not perfect, we're cool with that. We want to invite you to Jesus, invite you to meet Jesus, who hung out with sinners, who welcomed them, who ate with them, who befriended them, so that people wouldn't stay the way they were, but could grow in the way that God created them to be. Jesus offers forgiveness and grace. You can have a fresh start, whatever mistakes that you have made in your past. Here's our final application. I told you the Song of Solomon. It's a song about human love, written to give us wisdom. But there are thematic echoes all throughout that point to Jesus. Because Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Jesus is the hero that everything points to ultimately. Here's my question for you. How is your desire for Christ? And this is those specifically who follow Jesus as your leader, as your savior. How is your desire for Christ? Just as your desire for intimacy with your spouse is a pretty reliable indicator of how your marriage is doing, your desire for intimacy with Christ is a pretty reliable indicator of your spiritual health. If you're struggling with desire to spend time to be with your divine bridegroom, follow, I want to encourage you to follow these same steps that I listed earlier for your marriage, but in reverse order. Number one, understand. We need to understand. Understand that the barrier to intimacy with Christ is sin. Sinning is spiritually cheating on Jesus, our divine bridegroom. Sin fills us with guilt and shame and causes us to want to spend time, you know, to, to avoid spending time with Jesus. Is there something in your life that is causing you to not want to spend time in prayer, to not open up his love, his love letter to us, the Bible. There's something that's keeping you from wanting to go to church, uh, to spend time with other believers. We can understand that oftentimes that's sin in our lives. It's the same in a marriage, that if you've been looking at pornography or if you've been cheating on your spouse, there's a barrier there. You don't want to be with that person. And you understand in the same way in our spiritual life, when there's sin in our hearts and in our lives, it's come between us and Christ. It, it makes us not want to engage in an intimate relationship with our Savior. Number two, remember. Remember what Jesus has done for you, that he died on the cross for your sins so that you could have freedom, that you could have hope, that you could experience forgiveness from the mistakes that you and I have made. That's why here, on a regular basis, we receive communion as a way to remember. We do that next Sunday to remember what Jesus did for us. If you are lacking that desire to spend time with Jesus, think back. Remember what he's done for you. Remember the blessings that he's put in your life. Remember how he's come through for you in difficult times. The more we remember, the more we praise and thank God, and the more we want to draw close to our Savior. Remember what Jesus has done for you. And the third thing, pray. 
If you've lost your first love, pray for it. Pray Psalm 51, verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Pray for God to ignite passion in your heart to draw you to Jesus. Pray that God will give you the desire to pray, to worship, to study God's word. If you feel distant from your Savior Jesus, you need to understand what it is. Maybe there's barriers in your life. There's things that you've been letting go. There's sin that you need to deal with. You need to remember. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember that Jesus loves you. Remember that none of us are too messed up that he doesn't welcome us. That we're, whatever we've done, whatever has been done to us, whatever mistakes we've made or, or things, people, way people have hurt us, we're never too screwed up for him. He doesn't get tired of us coming to him and, and, and repenting of saying, I'm sorry. It's been a while. Remember that Jesus loves you. And third, pray about it. Pray. Just say, God, I don't feel like praying. I need you to help me. Last week, I, I heard some news that I was just struggling with. And, and, and my prayer has just been, God, I need you to change my heart on this. <laughs> I, I feel one way, and, and I, I don't want to pray anymore about it, but I trust that you can do this. And you know what? He is starting to answer that prayer. Sometimes you just need to just, quick prayers. God, I need help in this. Pray. My, my desire is that for all the married couples, that you would, that this series would just be a tool for you to rekindle that passion, that desire, that there'd be helpful tools on to deal with conflict we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about next week the importance of words and how words matter. Next week we're going to be addressing things like pornography and how that can come between uh, spouses in a marriage relationship. We're going to be talking about these, these little things that come into our, our, our marriages and, and can wreak havoc. We're going to be talking about, you know, what does it look like after the honeymoon and, and things have kind of cooled off and how do you rekindle that? How do you then go back and remember your vows and why you fell in love? And what does a growing, maturing love look like? And how does that change from kind of a selfish love to a selfless love? And, and that's what we're going to see in this, in this progression throughout this book. My desire is that for those of you who are single, that you'll find hope and encouragement that you won't feel less than human, that if you are currently dating or looking for someone, or teenagers, you're looking forward to somebody getting married, that you'll say, you know, that's the kind of marriage I want. I want to have patience and then passion later. I want to find someone with a good name, with good character, someone's going to treat me right. And my desire is that for everyone, that we would have a desire to spend time with Jesus, our Savior, who loves us. He welcomes us. He invites us into the church, which is the bride of Christ. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for the book of the Song of Solomon. I thank you uh, for the, these truths that we can apply to our lives. I ask God that you'd be with us as we sp spend the next uh, five weeks studying this book, applying the truths to our lives. And God, I want to thank you that uh, you've been with us as a, as a new church, and we're celebrating uh, our second birthday. Thank you, God, for being with us and, and for all the blessings that we've seen. In your name we pray. Amen.